everyone, Future Ambi here. We had some issues with the recordings this episode, so I had to use backup audio for some parts. Sorry about that. Hello and welcome to episode 25, man that seems like a pretty awesome milestone, of Board Game Blitz, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network and a podcast about all things board games that you can listen to in less time than it takes to wait for the delivery of that Kickstarter you backed what seems like forever ago. This week, if you hadn't guessed, we're talking Kickstarter. First, we discuss a few games we've played recently, like 1880, Seven Wonders, and Bridges to Nowhere. Then we talk about crowdfunding and how it affects our hobby, including some games that we love that came from Kickstarter, some projects we're currently backing, and why you shouldn't always worry about hopping on the hype train when a project hits the site. Finally, we wrap things up with a look at the etymology of the word promise. And now, here are your hosts, Ambie, Cassidy, and me, Crystal. Choo-choo! Hey, Ambie, what's that I hear? <laughs> um, well, that's a train. Uh, recently, I played 1880 China, which was published in 2010, and it was reprinted in 2016 with small print runs. It's designed by Helmut Oli and Lonnie Orgler and published by Double O Games, which is their own company. And the designers have actually made some well-known games. Together, they designed Russian Railroads, and Oli designed First Class, which just came out recently. And also, Orgler just did a Kickstarter for 18CZ, which is another 18XX game. And I think 1880 is actually really pretty and aesthetically pleasing compared to other 18XX games, but it's still easy to see what's going on. 1880 is set in China, starting in 1880, which was when the first official Chinese railroad was built. And it continues through communism and ends in modern times. The game plays with three to seven players. We played it with three, and our play took five and a half hours, so it's a Holy longer moly. game. <laughs> yeah. That, that, is, that is intense. Yep. Like in other 18xx games, you're a railroad capitalist buying and selling shares to open and run railroad companies. But 1880 is a run-good game, which means there aren't as many financial manipulations, but the focus is on creating companies that have good routes that pay good dividends. This was one of the most complex and thematic 18xx games I've played so far. For example, in order to build your track, you need to have building permits. So when you start a company, you choose a permit to get, and that determines when you can build track. So if you get an early permit, you can build track right away, but then as time goes on, you can't build anymore. Also, each player is partnered with a foreign investor at the beginning of the game, and that simulates the investments of other countries with China in the late 1800s. If you're familiar with other 18xxs, they're like miners. They can lay track and run trains, which can help, since your companies can't always build track because of the permits. And then once you join up with the foreign investor, you merge, and the company can get all their assets. A really interesting part of 1880 is the order that the companies operate. Usually, a company order is determined dynamically based off the share price of the company, but in 1880, turn order is always fixed, depending on when the company was created and for how much. And that simulates the governmental oversight over the ways companies operated in China. Another interesting part is that stock rounds happen when the last train of a type is bought or removed, so the timing is player-controlled. Early in the game, my husband was actually able to merge with the foreign investor and buy the last train in the same turn, so he was the only one out of us who had money to invest in the stock round, and that gave him a really good lead. Also, if all the corporations operate without buying a train, then all the trains of the current type are removed, which moves the game faster. Usually in 18xx games, you need to buy trains in order to push the game faster. But in this game, you can actually speed up the game by not buying trains, since the whole stack gets removed if no one buys them. 
One of my favorite parts of 1880 was communism. <laughs> when the first four train is bought, communism starts, which means the stock prices don't move at all. Usually stock prices fall when companies withhold or people sell shares, and they go up when companies pay out dividends. So during communism, the companies can withhold a bunch so they can accumulate wealth to become a great railroad while the investors get nothing. <laughs> I had a really fun time because I planned my companies for communism from the beginning. I prepared them to have good trains and routes during the communism phase, and then right before communism started, I bought a bunch of shares in one of my companies and sold shares in the other ones. And then during communism, the companies that I had fewer shares in, I just had them withhold dividends the entire time, and they saved up money to buy the good permanent trains, while the company that I had invested completely in paid out the dividends, so I could have enough money at the end of communism to buy back my shares in my other companies. And so when communism ended, I was able to get a couple permanent trains for my companies. But unfortunately, communism didn't last as long as I hoped for, so I didn't get as much money as I wanted from it. But it was really exciting doing that. That was 1880 China. It's definitely not a good starting 18xx since it's so complicated, but it's really interesting and had a different feel from other 18xx's I've played. But unfortunately, like most 18xx games, since it's a small print run, it's unavailable and you can only get it on the secondary market. So, sorry. What's the appeal then for to play games like 18xx specifically, since it's almost always a small print run? So why, why keep doing that? Well, we like the games. It's fun. Um, but the reason it's a small print run is because there isn't that much demand for them. So these people are just making it. It's basically self-published. For 1880, I think it's about 100 games in a print, and it's this guy making them, and it costs about $100. We actually got it cheaper because we had to cut out the tiles ourselves, but there are only a certain amount where the publisher or the designer guy cuts out the tiles for you, and then there were a certain amount where you cut it out yourself. So then why not do like a print-on-demand model instead well, of just That's a... basically what it is. He... The way it worked for the second run is the designer announced it on BGG and then everyone can just email him and PayPal him. But I think he had like a limit ah. after he got it because he only has so much time. Right. He's only one person. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Recently, I got to play Seven Wonders. Seven Wonders came out in 2010 from Asmodee, and it plays two to seven players in roughly half an hour. I like that it's two to seven players in roughly half an hour. It's not half an hour per player. It's not half an hour per two players. It's literally half an hour, even if there's seven players. Which is crazy and kind of rare. <laughs> yeah. There aren't a lot of games where you can be like, yeah, we can accommodate seven players and it's not a party game. <laughs> yep. And it'll only take a half an hour. <laughs> or probably 45 minutes with new players. Um, if you're not familiar, Seven Wonders is fast-paced card game. It's card drafting and simultaneous action, hence the half an hour for everyone because everyone's taking all their turns at the same time. Each player drafts and plays cards at the same time through three rounds, or ages. There are several different types of cards giving you different benefits. So some of the cards are going to give you victory points for the end of the game. Some will give you money. Some will give you resources to play future cards because each card has a cost. Some are free, but most have a cost. There's science cards that will give you knowledge in a specific area of science. And the more you collect of those, the more points you'll get at the end of the game. And so there's a lot of different variation and a lot of different ways that you can play. There's also the military cards, meaning you can fight your neighbors, you know, if you want to be that person. 
<laughs> Additionally, these cards can be used to build your wonder, which is why we're called Seven Wonders, giving you additional benefits and victory points throughout the game or at the end of the game. Uh, I really like the concept behind Seven Wonders because you really only need to focus on what you're doing and what the people to your immediate left and your immediate right are doing. Because if they're working on their military to fight you, then you probably need to work on your military so that maybe they can't punch you in the face. Unless you really don't care. <laughs> um, if you lose the military combat, you get a negative victory point, And that's not a huge deal. But the person that wins it each round... They get one victory point the first round, three the second round, and five victory points on the final round. So the more that they kick you in the face, the more victory points they're going to get for the end game. So it's kind of important to pay attention to that, unfortunately. So the last time, or not the last time, but the first time I got to play Seven Wonders was six years ago. So in 2011, that was six years ago at uh, PAX East, I had... Literally no idea what I was getting myself into. I had no idea what I was doing through most of the game. And somehow at the end, they're like, hey, you win. And I'm like, what? What did I even do? How did this even happen? So after that, I really decided I needed to sit down and figure out what, what was actually going on with the game. And I don't, I don't win much anymore now. That was not the only time, but one of the rare times that I actually get to win at Seven Wonders. So anyway, Seven Wonders is great. If you haven't played it and it's been out for seven years, you should really get on that. It takes half an hour. <laughs> I'm the same way. I almost never win. I almost feel like you need to have uh, for like a perfect game. Like it's good pretty much with anybody. But for like a perfect game, you kind of need everybody to be at the same mental wavelength or something because if somebody doesn't know what they're doing then you can't predict what they're going to draft and what they're going to play so it's harder to like counter them whereas if somebody knows exactly what they're doing it's easier it's kind of like poker in that way you know yeah. like the metagame mm -hmm. is interesting so that might be like why a new player could theoretically win because they might not make the obvious choice because they don't know it's the obvious choice for me when i play a new game i like to try all of the different actions that are available. I like to try all of the little different things just to see what's going to work maybe mm -hmm. in a future game. So that's probably what I did with this. I was like, well, I'll get a little bit of military. I'll get a little bit of science. I'll get a little bit of these blue cards because, you know, victory points are nice and stuff like that. That's probably how I ended up winning. <laughs> My problem with games like that is I, for whatever reason, have a really difficult time pivoting. So like once I've decided on somewhat of a strategy – when it technically becomes obvious that I should be moving to something else, either as a result of what cards I'm getting or what my the people around me are doing, I have a hard time shifting gears and moving to something different. And in mm -hmm. a game like Seven Wonders, you really do need to be able to pivot because, again, like you said, with like military, like if everybody else is kicking my butt, I got to start drafting military cards. That one's a little easier, I think, for me. But the yeah. other stuff sometimes is... Well, like, Tough. if nobody's taking science for whatever reason, and you're getting handed all the science cards, <laughs> and you're like, well, I mean, I guess I got to do this because nobody else is doing it. So it's like mad points at the end if you can do it. Mad but points. Mad points. <laughs> I'm so glad I have the calculator, though, on the app, because calculating science at the end of the game is the worst. Oh, so is there a dedicated app for Seven Wonders, or are you just talking about a regular calculator? Oh, no, there's uh, there's an app for Seven Wonders. You put in the victory points for each 
type of cards. So the blue cards, you count with the victory points. The purple cards, you count with victory points. But when you get to the science cards, it's on like a little scroll. So you're like, okay, I have three of the gears. I have three of mm. this one. I have three of this one. And then it does the math for you. Oh, that's really oh, cool. That's cool. I've never yeah. used the app before. It's awesome. I App integration in board games is kind of super awesome. And I am very much on board with that kind of thing. The app for Sheriff of Nottingham is kind of similar. It tell, asks you how many of each type of card or contraband the people collected. And then, yeah, it figures out who has majority in each section and who gets the bonuses and all that stuff. And it's pretty cool. I got to play a game that is currently on Kickstarter uh, not too long ago. We got a prototype copy of Bridges to Nowhere which is a light two-player game from Doomsday Robots. It takes about 15 to 20 minutes to play, and it's already funded on Kickstarter. So we're super excited about that. It's like, I don't know what percentage they're at now. I could look it up, but it is, they're, they're doing gangbusters, which is awesome. So in Bridges to Nowhere, uh, the two players take turns drafting cards that represent sections of bridges and adding them to a bridge uh, in front of them that is held together by pillar cards that they start with and they try to form the best bridge possible to earn victory points. There are placement requirements based on the numbers on each card as well as placement bonuses based on the symbols on each card. So there are usually multiple possibilities and trying to get the most advantageous cards for yourself while ensuring that your opponent doesn't get the cards that they want is kind of where a lot of the fun and strategy of this game shines. Since the copy that I've been playing on is a prototype, the art and the text on the cards isn't final, but the you they've kind of shown the new art on the Kickstarter campaign. And I mean, the one I have, I already thought was really pretty and it's only gotten better. The palette on the ones I have is like mostly orange, but in like a really cool sunset sky way. And they've added blues into it on the Kickstarter campaign. And oh, it is just so, so pretty. It really is a good two player game. And I don't play a lot of two player games, but I like these kind of light filler games that still have some decent strategy. The rules are simple enough that you could explain it to just about anybody, but the strategies aren't always immediately obvious so i think it gives the game some good replayability and in addition to the base game you can also play with the advanced rules which incorporate contract cards and those give the goal give the players specific goals that they need to complete during the course of the game and there's a variety of those and you would only select a certain number of them each game so there's even more variability in that aspect makes each game a little bit different and I know that um, the deluxe edition of the game, which um, there's, you can get either the standard edition for $12 or the deluxe edition for 22 which is still a really good deal. Um, it includes some extra types of cards that aren't in the prototype that I have that I'm really excited to see and check out. So I highly recommend that if you like two-player games or you like light card games, that you head over to Kickstarter and give this a look. Oh, and I also believe the deluxe edition includes enough cards that you could actually play with four players instead of two. And I think that that would be really interesting to try out as well. So uh, make sure you head over to Kickstarter and give Bridges to Nowhere a look. Uh, the campaign ends... May 11th. It's May 11th. Yeah. Okay, so you'll still have... 
less than a week, but you'll have time. So uh, listen to this episode and then go to Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah, and they're they're very fully funded. They're over eighteen thousand of their forty three hundred goal. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting! Yeah, and the the gentleman that we've been speaking with, who sent us the prototype is just the nicest guy and has been really like great about answering questions I had because in the early uh, versions of the rule book and some of the cards, the text was a little bit unclear and they've been working to clean all that up and make it like super easy to understand. So even though I have a prototype copy of the game, I backed the deluxe edition and I'm excited to get it. Yeah. I still need to get that. I need to get on it. <laughs> I should just do it right now. <laughs> For this week's discussion topic, we wanted to talk about Kickstarter. And technically, that could also include other crowdfunding platforms such as Indiegogo. But it seems like the majority of board games that go the crowdfunding route tend to end up on Kickstarter. So what are your all's thoughts on board games that come from Kickstarter in general? I tend not to look much at Kickstarter, so a lot of times I don't know... If I'm buying a board game after the fact, I don't know if it came from Kickstarter or not. But one that I do have is Millennium Blades. That came from Kickstarter, and that's a really good game. So I think like the games that are good that came on Kickstarter, they will come after in retail, and you'll hear about them outside of Kickstarter as well. I think that's definitely true. I'm sure it's not. It's it's happened, but it's rare that a super awesome game comes to Kickstarter, and then never gets retail distribution. Yeah. Because most of the games that hit Kickstarter that are widely praised generally tend to get picked up either by a publisher or the person who did the Kickstarter is able to, you know, produce more after the fact as a result of the funds gained from Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. I think some of them even have retail levels on the Kickstarter now. Yeah, that does seem to be pretty common. I don't think I'd seen that. That's interesting. I think actually Bridges to Nowhere, which we just talked about, I believe they have a retailer level. So yeah, you you basically get discounted, like a few copies of the game at a discounted price by going through the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. And what's cool is for retailers who do that, then I think in most cases, they would get those copies before general retail distribution would hit. Mm-hmm. So they can kind of be, you know, with the new hotness, which is appealing to some people. Yeah. I personally don't have a ton of past experience with Kickstarter. I tend to sit on the fence with a lot of stuff until I know it's going to be funded because I get my hopes up about something. And then if it doesn't come to fruition, yeah, I get a little bummed. But I mean, there's probably an obvious reason for why it wouldn't if it didn't. But I just tend to not do too much in that arena i'll wait for a retail release generally if it's something that i'm really interested in and what's funny is prior to counting the number of board game related (laughs) projects that i've backed i think i would have said something similar (laughs) but and admittedly my kickstarter backing is still pales in comparison to uh some other people's like there has been a lot of board games on kickstarter Mm -hmm. but i went through and counted And if I count board games, board game content creators, and board game accessories, I have backed 30 projects that are related to board games in some way on Kickstarter. 
And what's interesting is the first board game that I backed on Kickstarter, I own and have never played. And so it is Machine of Death, the game of creative assassination. And it funded on March 19th of 2013. So <laughs> almost exactly four years ago. So that's, that's not bad. 30 projects in four years. That's not. Yeah, but you've got one sitting on your shelf that's been sitting there for four years. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, that's crazy that that was four years ago now. So I was looking at the Kickstarters I've backed, and the first one I backed was also in 2013. And since then, I've to- backed a total of three projects total. <laughs> <laughs> so slightly less than me. Yeah. So I don't usually look at Kickstarter much because I don't like hype that much. I don't want to like get all hyped up about a game that I'm not going to be able to even look at until like a year later. So I, I generally like to try games out first before I buy them, which you can't do on Kickstarter. Well, here, to pa- to stop you, technically... Nowadays, especially for like card-based Kickstarters, a lot of them do offer free print and plays. That's true. Yep. I mean, your point still stands, but technically, if you wanted to put in the time and effort, some of them you are able to try before you buy to some degree. Yeah. And some of the others give you access to the rulebook, so you can at least review that before yeah. you make a decision. Yeah, if a Kickstarter doesn't have a rulebook, then it's like, what am I even looking at? <laughs> like, I don't know. That does tend to be kind of frustrating when it's like... You can't really even show us any of the rule book. Like, we get that it's not in its final polished state, but you kind of should have something at this point. Yeah. <laughs> One Kickstarter that I'm in, I'm not actually backing, but we got in with a group of friends is 18CZ. We're getting three copies. We got together with two other people to get it for cheaper. That's cool. So. Is that one actively on Kickstarter or has it already? Uh, it uh, recently ended. Okay. But it got funded like way past its its Yeah, goal, it went. Which was really it exciting. got funded very quickly. Mm-hmm. I was keeping an eye on that. So, there have been a few games that started on Kickstarter that kind of became bigger than life either during their Kickstarter campaigns or after the games were released. I did not back Blood Rage when it was on Kickstarter originally, which is now probably 2 or 3 years ago. If I had to guess but i have definitely played blood rage since then and man that is a fun game (laughs) have either of you played blood rage i've played it it's okay um so i think that's another thing like a lot of the games on kickstarter aren't my type of games a lot of them are mini heavy like dudes on a map type game which i don't particularly enjoy because i think area control is one of my least favorite mechanisms blood rage has other things than area control but it also has area control same with Scythe. Yeah, Scythe um, was also a really big deal on yeah. Kickstarter. Both of them, they're fine games, but they're not something that I would want to own. I still haven't played Scythe. I wanna I wanna give it a shot. I have no I'm not sure how much I'll like it or not. I didn't back Scythe because I really thought that it was gonna be heavy on the area control. And after playing it, a friend's Kickstarter copy there was some area control, but it's just because you want this one spot on the board and it's the only place like this thing. I don't remember what it is that happens, but it's the only place that you can do this. And if you really want it, then you've got to be on that spot. So somebody usually camps out there early. And then if you want that spot, you got to fight them. But you don't have to do it. It's not something that you have to do to play the game. So you can just let that person sit there. And I think the big part of Scythe, though, as far as area control is that 
you want to look like you can beat somebody down, but not actually beat them down because you get uh, negative points if you actually do. Like negative things happen to you if you actually beat somebody down. But yeah, so Scythe was huge on Kickstarter. And I remember looking at it going, yeah, this isn't my cup of tea. And then I ended up um, purchasing it uh, retail. I It's funny. I actually backed Scythe on day one when the campaign launched just because I was like, this is the coolest looking awesomeness ever. And then as like a few days or maybe a couple of weeks passed, I realized I was like, I don't think my initial reaction was <laughs> inaccurate, but... I don't think that this is a game that belongs in my personal collection. Mm-hmm. It's similar to Blood Rage for me in that I like Blood Rage and I will play it when someone presents it to me, but it's not a game that I need to own. Yeah. So I rescinded my pledge to size at the time, <laughs> which I don't like to do because it makes me feel guilty because I know that like content <laughs> creators see when people like rescind their pledges and it makes me feel bad. Yeah, well, but honestly, they didn't need you. <laughs> That's true. With, with, it's not like I, I was the difference between Scythe happening or not. <laughs> I ended up getting it retail just so I could play the solo game, which I still mm. need to sit down and do. But that's why I've got it now. I like it, but I'm not going to take my copy to our public board gaming nights. Other people will, but I'm not going to because that's a lot of stuff. And more recently, I think the the most recent example of something similar would be Rising Sun, oh, yeah. which was the that game is so pretty. It is pretty. It, it, it they've it's been called the spiritual successor to Blood Rage. So it's not a sequel to Blood Rage, but it's supposed to, I imagine, be similar in some mechanical ways. So while I did not back Rising Sun, at least two or three people in my board game group <laughs> did. So I know I'll be able to get my paws on it when it comes yeah. out. So I'm certain somebody in my group has backed it because there's a lot of people. But none of the people that I play with regularly have said anything about it other than it's pretty but so many of us don't like area control is the problem, I think. It is so pretty, and I honestly wanted to back it just because of that, but I don't think I would ever play it. So diverting away from the area control type games, but to something else that's definitely hyped at the moment, currently active on Kickstarter is the second printing of Gloomhaven. For those who aren't aware of what Gloomhaven is, it is a 21-pound box of board gaming awesomeness <laughs> it is basically a dungeon crawler almost like an rpg style game to su- not like a not like a tabletop rpg but kind of a video game rpg where you are creating characters and taking them on adventures and then they eventually retire and you go through scenarios and there's no dice i believe so that's cool because a lot of dungeon crawl games kind of are heavily dice reliant and this one is not but it is universally online. People are saying that this is one of the greatest board games they've ever played. I, I definitely will admit that I kind of, especially the past year or two, have experienced what the kids these days call FOMO, which is fear of missing out. So I am a reasonable person who knows that... Just about every game, as we discussed earlier, that is good, that comes from Kickstarter, will be available somewhere else later. But I really, really like being one of the first people to have a game. (laughs) 
that feeling of coming to game night with the thing that just got shipped from Kickstarter and everybody's like, oh yeah, I heard about that. I want to play it. Like, I like doing that. And so I think sometimes that kind of gets me to back games that maybe I shouldn't, but I don't know. For Gloomhaven, I know two people who have the first edition and one of them we're going to be playing it with him uh, starting next month, I think. So I don't, I have like no desire or need to back it on Kickstarter because I'll be playing it. The only game right now that I kind of have a desire to back on Kickstarter is Brass. There's a new reprinting of Brass coming out, which is really pretty. Brass has been on my shame list for a while. <laughs> it's by Martin Wallace. It's a heavy economic game. But yeah, the, the new Kickstarter, I just looked at it the other day and then remembered why I don't like reading through Kickstarter pages because it looks really cool and then I want it, but I, I don't want to buy it because I don't really like want to wait that long. <laughs> and and also, two, I know two people who are also backing it, so like I don't need to because I'll be able to play it with them. Speaking of waiting, that's actually... Also, something that is relevant to Kickstarter campaigns is, yeah, you said you get all the hyped and excited about this thing, and then you have to wait forever yeah. for it to come. So, and like, you, you get excited about it, and then you kind of forget about it yeah. to some degree. And then yeah, it but comes then it and shows like, up oh. at your door, and you're like, oh, yay, this thing that I totally forgot that I purchased. But it sucks if you, like, <laughs> your tastes have changed by that time, and then you don't want to play it anymore. <laughs> That's a good point. I know that we're running out of time. We have not touched on a ton of stuff related to Kickstarter projects in regard to board games. But we would love to hear our listeners' thoughts on anything that you guys want to talk about with Kickstarter. Uh, you know, tweet at us or head over to this episode's post in our Board Game Geek forum and give us your thoughts. Because I think that this is a, a much bigger discussion that we cannot even attempt to fit into a 30-minute episode. Maybe we'll be able to touch on this again in the future. But there's a lot of cool stuff that is made possible by Kickstarter, so I think it's a conversation worth having. For the etymology segment this week, since we've been talking about Kickstarters, which tend to make a lot of assurances regarding what they'll deliver to you, we're examining the history behind the word promise in its noun form. The modern word originated in the 1400s and comes from the old French promesse, meaning a guarantee or assurance which finds its roots in the Latin word promissum, the noun use of the past participle promitere, which meant send forth, let go, foretell, or assure beforehand. The ground sense of that word was simply declaration made about the future, about some act to be done or not done. Which, if we're being honest, is all a promise really is today, too. So next time you're promising your money to a newly launched Kickstarter campaign, let's hope they keep all their promises to you in return. And that's it for this week's Board Game Blitz. Visit our website, BoardGameBlitz.com, to get links to all our social media pages, including our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Board Game Geek Guild. To support our show financially for as little as $1 a month, visit patreon.com slash boardgameblitz. Our patrons get a lot of cool benefits, including access to our private Slack channel, where you can chat with us directly anytime. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Morrow. Technical support provided by Toby Mao. Board Game Blitz is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Check out the other shows in the network by visiting dicetowernetwork.com. Have suggestions for the show or just want to say hi? Shoot us an email at boardgameblitz at gmail.com. Until next time, 
I will find my game. I can blitz the distance. I will back today. Hope I won't wait long. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Um, but unfortunately, communism didn't last as long as I hoped for, so I didn't get as much money as I wanted from it. But it was really exciting doing that. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think I already know what our Twitter guest quote is going to be for this week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but there's 21 pounds yeah, the 21 box is worth huge. of game. Like, like the, there's a lot. The height in of there. the box is like a foot high. It's, it's really big. For those of, those of you who are listening to this, Ambie's on video right now, like doing the whole like arms thing right now. She's trying to. It's, yeah, it's it's big. That's for sure.